I want to start our time today by giving you the main point up front. If you write nothing else down, if you take notes, at least jot this down. If you do the will of God, you will face opposition. That's the main point of the passage. If you do the will of God, you will face opposition. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are historical books. So future generations, especially the Israelites who lived between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, they could look back on their history and they could be reminded of very important, very foundational principles. They could be reminded of God's sovereignty. They could be reminded of God's faithfulness and compassion because the people were allowed to return. They received provision to rebuild their city. But as we come to chapter 4, they would have been reminded that doing the will of God means you will face opposition. When we finished chapter 3, the people had rebuilt the altar. They had already laid, they finished laying the foundation to the temple. People were celebrating. Things are moving in the right direction. But now comes opposition. Verse 1, one more time, says, Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses. So from the opening chapter, opening verse of this chapter, the author wants us to make sure we know the kind of people that we're dealing with. These are enemies. These are adversaries. These are people working to stop or at least slow down the cause of God and the cause of Israel. They're barriers. They're in the way. They make life hard. Have you ever felt like that in your own life? Have you ever felt like that with regard to seeking to honor Christ, it would be nice if everything could just move forward smoothly and everybody's on board and we all advance together. But that's not how things play out. We face opposition personally as disciples of Christ. We face opposition corporately as the church of Christ. In this passage, it's more of a corporate opposition because it is the work of the nation that's being opposed. When they settled in, no, there doesn't seem to be any opposition. When they rebuilt their houses, there wasn't really much opposition. But when they come to rebuild the temple, then opposition begins. And notice whom it is that these adversaries first go to. It says they went to Zerubbabel and the head's of the households. They went first to the leaders. If you want to put a stop, if you want to frustrate work that's going on, attack the leaders. That expression of their antagonism places a stronger emphasis on today's message for leaders. If you're in a position of leadership, if you're hoping or aspiring to a position of leadership, you better be prepared all the more to face Opposition. What do they say to the leaders? If we didn't have verse 1, which told us that they were adversaries or enemies, 
It would sound like a humble request. It sounds like they're, they're trying to help. Verse 2 continues, let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esar Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. These are not Israelites. These are foreigners. They were placed in the land after the Assyrians conquered the north. The, the Israelites there were killed and scattered. But you don't want the land to stay empty. So the Assyrians brought in all types of other nations that you can live here. Take over their homes. Take care of this. We're on your side. What's the tactic here? It's not overt opposition. It's friendly deception. We're on your team. Let us join you. We, we worship the same God you do. This was an attempt at sabotage. Not every opponent that comes your way or our way is going to come growling and snarling and in your face. The more dangerous approach is for them to say, we're with you. We're on the same side. Why is that more dangerous? Because when there are overt attacks from the outside, you can unite a people. We're going to work together. We're going to fight them. But if someone can infiltrate what the people of God is doing, they can change who they are and what they're after. And that is, again, much more dangerous. One of the examples of that kind of attack today, particularly with the Church of Christ, is false teachers that are all over the world. People claiming to be Christians, claiming to represent Christ and teach the Bible, and sadly, they are on the side of our enemy. They're doing the work of Satan, to use Jesus' words. They're adversaries who have infiltrated the church. Jude talks about them. He says they're in your love feast. You guys gather as a church, you think everything's fine. They're eating with you. Paul said there are wolves among the sheep. He was not, and we should not have in mind for this category, smaller theological disputes. It's not about that. It doesn't even connect to larger disputes that I think are connected to the health of a church. These are disputes that run contrary to the gospel. These are teachers who, like Jesus said to the Pharisees, are making disciples and leading them to hell. Paul told the Galatians, even if I or an angel would come to you, if they preach a different gospel, they are anathema. Cursed of God. That's where we should place people who reject and pervert the true gospel of Christ. These are people who don't preach true repentance, claiming you can be a Christian and keep living your life of sin. These are people who don't uphold the, the full deity of Christ. People who, who, who don't want to say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. They're adding works to the gospel. These are people who have distorted the gospel of Christ. That's why the gospel is so necessary. That's the word that's proclaimed. That's the word that saves. You get that wrong, you cannot fulfill the mission you've been given. The gospel is Christ came, man, and God, and he died. 
He died not just to show us how much he loves us. He died to actually bear the punishment that we as sinners deserve, which is death under a holy God. And then he rose again in victory. And the gospel includes the call. You have to repent of your sin. You have to believe in Christ and you will be saved. Well, this principle of separation was something Zerubbabel understood. He's the leader of the Israelites. And look at what he says, verse three. Here's his response to the offer of the enemies. But Zerubbabel, that's the civil leader, Jeshua, the priest, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to Yahweh, the God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So at the end of that verse, on the one side, they're leaning on their political freedom. Cyrus authorizes. They're they're appealing to civil authority, but more important than that, they rely on the word of God. And they say to them, you're not on our side. You have nothing to do with us in accomplishing the mission we have been given by God. That doesn't mean the Israelites couldn't accept any help from unbelievers. Otherwise, they wouldn't have taken the gold and the silver from the Egyptians or from King Cyrus when he let them go. But the rebuilding of the temple was a distinct aspect of their work. And God had already given instructions as to how that was to be done. Levites were to do the work. Remember from chapters 1 and 2, men came back and said, I'm a Levite, let me be a priest. And they said, you don't have the paperwork to prove that you're a Levite. So you cannot serve in the temple until another priest comes and God confirms whether you are a Levite or not. God had also given instructions as to how he was to be worshipped. The very first commandment, I am the Lord your God, there shall be no other gods before me. So these foreigners, they they worshipped Yahweh in, in some way. But they did it the same way they worshiped all the other pagan gods. It's just another god that we worship, and he makes our life better. And so the leaders say to them, no, you do not know our god, and you will not take part in building this temple. This was work specifically for God's people. We see that principle in the New Testament When Paul says to the Corinthians, a passage I think a lot of you at least have heard, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We tend to apply it to marriage, which is true. But the context is broader. In in the context, Paul is talking about spiritual work, spiritual tasks that we've been given. God has given us a mission And he's given us the tools that we need to accomplish this mission. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the word. And the point is, if we are going to be doing the work of God, we cannot be partnered with those who do not know God. That phrase, unequally yoked, it comes from an Old Testament phrase. The Israelites were forbidden from, the yoke is the piece of wood that two oxen usually go in. They plow the land. He says, you shall not on one yoke, place an ox, an ox and a donkey. There was an object lesson there. there there's, a, there's a wisdom to that. You're gonna, it's going to pull off to one side. But there's an object lesson in there. These are different animals. 
They don't pull the same way. And the point there for us now in the New Testament, Paul says, is if you're going to be doing the work of God, you cannot be partnered with people that are pulling in a different direction. If you're working on the plumbing at your house and your neighbor says, hey, you need any help? You don't turn to them and say, I shall not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Because fixing the plumbing is part of something everybody does. Buy him a meal, let him help you fix the plumbing, and preach the gospel to him. But when we're dealing with spiritual task of bringing people to know Christ, that is a job for the church, for the people of God. I think one area that we need to be careful with is the political realm. Because you will find people on the radio or social media or on the internet, and they'll agree with you about certain moral things or about certain changes in government that you want. And because they agree with you on those things, the tendency can say, see, see, they're, they're with us. They're on our side. And they might be on your side politically, but if they don't know Christ, if they don't understand the gospel, they're not on your side eternally. If we forget that principle, we may begin to, to assume that Christ came simply to help us change laws and reform government. That is not the mission of the church. What's the mission of the church? Go make disciples, or, or more specifically, go disciple. Take the people that don't know Christ and tell them about Christ. Call them to repentance. Call them to bow the knee to Christ as king. And take the people who do know Christ and teach them so they would grow even more. That's the mission we've been given. We preach the gospel. We deepen the faith of those who belong to Christ. That's a principle, again, that Zerubbabel understood. That's why he said to them very directly, as a good leader for the protection of his people, for the protection of the task, get out of here. You have nothing to do with us in this way. That's how he dealt with the Trojan horse of False friends. And given that stern response, it would have been nice if they said, yeah, you know what, sorry. Sorry we asked. We're done. But that's not what happened. We see it all through biblical history. We see it all through human history. Opposition does not go running away with its tail between its legs. Opposition continues. In this case, it grows into Political pressure. Look at verse 4. Then the people of the land, that is those who replaced the Israelites, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Verse 5. They bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. If you remember from chapters 1 and 2, the wood that was going to come, or chapter 3 they were going to build, came from the north, Tyre and Sidon. And so those cities are on the coast. It goes down the Mediterranean Sea, lands in Joppa, and then has to come down. Every time it gets on a boat or off a boat or passing on a road, it's got to pass through some official who allows those things to go. They got to pay fares. They got to go through customs, whatever that looked like back then. These enemies, it seems, are going to pay off the people who are guarding those roads to stop the work. They are investing 
against the work of God. The Israelites had money, gold, silver. They're investing in building a temple. This group is investing money to stop the work. Does that happen today? Are there people at a a political, national level, our country or any other country, are there people giving money to stop the work of God? Yes, there are. There are groups spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars pressuring representatives, lawmakers to stop the church from being obedient to its mission. That's not just a political thing. That's a spiritual thing. That's the work of Satan. Satan is the God of this world. We are not as far gone as countries like Afghanistan or China where the gospel is completely prohibited. But Satan, our enemy, the the roaring lion, is still working in the sons of disobedience. He's the prince of the power of the air. He wants to stop or he wants to frustrate or slow down the people and the plan of God. And were these enemies successful? Yes, they were. The end of verse 5 says, The plans of the Israelites were frustrated all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The foundation of the temple was laid somewhere around 539 B.C. That was during the time of Cyrus. After Cyrus, there came a king named Cambyses. And then after Cambyses, we get Darius. Darius becomes king at 522 B.C. So we go from 539 B.C. to 522 B.C. That means the work stopped on the temple for at least 15 years. Think about that. People are cheering, celebrating. We're ready to work. The foundation has been laid. And then 15 years, nothing happens. What does that tell you? It tells us that opposition at times will be sneaky, subtle. Opposition at times will be strong and direct. But opposition will also be stubborn. It's persistent. It doesn't give up. That's the kind of opposition we need to be aware of and ready to face. Sometimes it's sneaky, subtle. Sometimes it's strong and direct. But it will be stubborn. It's not going away. And as an example of how persistent this opposition was, the author of Ezra, starting in verse 6, jumps forward to a story of something that happened much later. This is during the reign of a king named Ahasuerus. He's also known as Xerxes. He's the king you read about in the book of Esther. So if you want something to do this week, 10 chapters, I think, read the book of Esther. That's happening back in Persia, a little later than this. This is sometime after the work had stopped, the work resumed, and then the work stopped again And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into detail. Again, you can read this for yourself. Think about some of the principles here and how they were trying to stop the work again. Basically, these new enemies, these future enemies, sent a letter to the king falsely accusing them of rebellion. You don't want these people to rebuild. That is not going to be good for you, Xerxes. 
They flatter the king and they make unfounded allegations. And as a result, the king orders the work to stop. The work will stop until I say it can resume. That's what he says. And it will resume. We'll get to Nehemiah eventually. But once that message goes out, the enemies come back with their paper in hand and by force it says, make the work stop. That's the story of verses 6 through 23. It's basically a long parenthetical story. It came later, but it's extending this, this theme of perpetual Opposition. If you feel comfortable, you can take your Bible, put some commas or some brackets just to remind yourself, verses 6 through 23. That's just a parenthetical note, a long parenthetical note. It's another example of the opposition they continue to face. But the last verse of the chapter, this comes back to the original story. So go ahead and jump there with me. This is the end of the chapter. The closing verse, this is what the enemies of God accomplished. Verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. What a contrast to the end of chapter 3. Again, people celebrating, cheering. The altar has, is, is now restored. The foundation's been laid. They're ready to move forward. Then you come to the end of chapter four, and it stops for more than 15 years. How do you think that felt? That's a punch in the gut. I'm sure you had angry Israelites. You had frustrated Israelites I'm sure there were those who felt powerless, helpless. Remember the old men who wept because they saw the first temple? Maybe they're thinking, I'm going to die before this even gets finished. I will not get to see the second temple. Maybe they felt hopeless. Why did the work stop? It stopped because the enemies of God rose up and opposed them. Opposition is inevitable. And to this point, the author doesn't blame the Israelites. He simply wants us to know that the work stopped because forces outside of the people's control made them stop. And we're going to face that as churches, as Christians. If you do the will of God, you will face opposition. You will be frustrated because sometimes work, in one way or another, will have to stop. We'll pick up the story next time, Lord willing, but I just want to close our time today with a modern application of this truth for me, for you, for us as a church. I think the simple application of this If we do the will of God, if we're going to face opposition, the question is, are we ready for that? Paul, in his final letter to Timothy, said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, not just be kind and and, and pleasant and, and polite, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he said, will be persecuted. While evil people... And imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving 
and being deceived. The people who we don't believe should be getting ahead and stopping the work of God will at times be successful. Apart from the intervening grace of God, things will go from bad to worse. Paul didn't say that was a possibility. Paul said that is an eventuality. And yet so many times, and I'm here with you, we think that if I want to be a faithful, God-honoring husband and wife and father and teacher and neighbor, I'm not going to face any problems. God's going to bless me. Lord, I'm ready today. I'm going to do your will. I'm going to pursue Christ. I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to lead my kids. I'm going to move in this ministry. And God's just going to open doors. That's what Paul said. Doors will open. And God may open doors. That doesn't mean it's all going to be easy. It just means it can move forward. If you want to seriously honor Christ, life will not be easy. We are at war, Peter says, with the sinful desires of our flesh. We are at war with Satan, who is a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And he is working even in the people of this world to oppose the mission of God. So you have to be ready. What would you say to someone who said, I'm going to be a professional UFC fighter? I'm a man who trained for months and then at the first fight looks at the ref and says, hey, stop the fight. He punched me in the face. What do you think? You're thinking, what is wrong with this guy? That, that's what he signed up for. It could be football, it could be boxing, whatever. You signed up for this. What did you expect? That's the reminder we have in Ezra chapter 4 with regard to seeking to do the will of God. Opposition is here, and when you're done with it, more opposition is coming. What did Jesus say? He wants to get his disciples ready. He's in the upper room with them. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's from John 16, 33. In this world, you will have tribulation. It's going to hurt. But that's not the end of the verse either. Right after that, Jesus says, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So yes, there is a relentless battle. That's, that's part of the game. Yes, there will be frustration. Yes, there will be obstacles. But in the end, we have to remind ourselves Christ wins and we belong to him. Even in the pain and the frustration and the agony and the friction, God's sovereign plan is still moving forward. You might see prosperity preachers on TV or in the radio, and you might, oh, I reject that. That is an aberration of the gospel. That's not, that's a perversion of the gospel. But every time we find ourselves surprised that honoring God is difficult, we're giving in to that type of message. 
The Apostle Paul understood that more than any of us. He risked his life to proclaim Christ, to teach the truth. And in his closing letter, before he dies, he writes 2 Timothy and he says, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Paul faced opposition. He describes it to the Corinthians too. Shipwrecks, sleepless nights, in the cold. What was Paul's desire? I want to glorify God. I want to preach Christ. I want to go to cities and, and, and establish churches for the glory of Christ. I want the Gentiles to come to know him. That's, that's what he wanted to do, but now he's in prison. Can't do that anymore, Paul. So he says this, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. That's the encouragement. There will be plenty of times as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a, as a member of our church where you're going to wish things could move more quickly for the glory of God. Wouldn't it be better if we could just be done with this? There are going to be seasons of pain and frustration. There are going to be temptations to hopelessness and despair. There are going to be times where it seems like the work of God is unnecessarily hampered. But in all of that, God's still in control. His word and his eternal plan can never be bound. Jesus said to his disciples, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And so no matter what kind of opposition we face corporately, nationally, or whatever opposition you face individually, whether some of us end up in prison or dead, Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Opposition is inevitable, but victory is certain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even in a people united and committed to do your will, there was frustration, there was difficulty, there was opposition. And we pray you would prepare us as wives, as men, as dads, as husbands, prepare us for all the different kinds of difficulties that can come, relational things, financial things. May we not be surprised. May we wake up each morning trusting and depending on Christ, relying on his strength to persevere, and filled with the hope and the joy that you're still in control. And thinking about this topic, we want to lift up specific groups to you, Lord, facing difficulties, distinct oppositions. We pray for our children. We try to instill faith and truth in their life, knowing that they will be bombarded by a godless and immoral world. Immorality is so easily 
accessible, promoted, flaunted. Guard them. And we be faithful to teach them and love them. And pray for our students, junior high and high school and college, those who are being bombarded with messages contrary to the word of God, seeking to undo their confidence in the truth, making a mockery of what you have told us. Protect them. Prepare them to face that opposition. For moms raising kids and wives, for dads, for husbands seeking to lead and shepherd in their homes, all kinds of opposition is there. Physical weakness, busyness, things we have to do even for work, distractions. Prepare us to face these things in a way that honors you. Give us the wisdom to know the difference between when opposition requires harsh, direct responses and when we can patiently but confidently wait for you to intervene. Help us depend on you, Lord. Strengthen us as a church for what's ahead. Only you know what that is. But may Christ be exalted. May his mission keep advancing. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.